welcome to She Said, She Said. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. Jay Newton Small is an accomplished journalist, author, and now entrepreneur. She wrote her 2016 best-selling book, Broad Influence, while also writing for Time Magazine. Now, Jay is using her fine-tuned skills as a storyteller and drawing on very personal experience to contribute in a new and meaningful way. She is the co-founder and CEO of a startup company called Memory Well. Jay, welcome to She Said, She Said. I'm so delighted to be here. <laughs> we are so happy to have you. I've been looking so forward to this conversation. So tell us about Memory Well. What is it? So Memory Well is a digital platform for senior storytelling, and it really grew out of my experience with my dad. So a little bit of background, my father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's when I was still a senior in college, and I became his primary caregiver after my mother passed um, in 2011 for the last five years of his life. And eventually I had to move him into a community. And when I did, they gave me this like 20 page questionnaire of uh, things about it, asking questions about his life. And I was sitting there trying to write down these answers, thinking, A, I have terrible handwriting and no one's ever going to be able to read this. <laughs> and B, I'm a professional writer and I challenge some people to answer these questions well. Like, describe your parents' 50 plus year marriage in four lines and <laughs> see who was ever going to read and remember. 20 pages of handwritten data points for the like 150 residents there. Nobody, right? Uh -huh. So. And, and is the purpose of these questions, so this is commonplace. Yeah. And the purpose of the questions is what? So the idea is that they want to help the caregivers get to better know the residents. But the problem is that nobody's really going to ever read through these questionnaires. They're handwritten. They sit in binders gathering dust. They don't really interact with them. And most of these caregivers um, are don't have high school degrees. There's 50 there's percent staff turnover annually in most of these communities because these are not great jobs to have, right? And so they're they're really not going to sift through all of these handwritten things that are very uneven. Some of them are incredibly long because the family was super excited about it and went to town. Some of them are like four sentences. And so um, they're really hard to sort of digest and, and, and really understand and get a grip of these people, especially when you have dozens and dozens of people in your community who you're trying to take care of. And so you end up with these communities that are incredibly isolating, right? So um, nobody knows anything about any of the residents, nobody knows anything about the staff, the, the, none of the residents' families know anything about each other. And so, um, and it's really depressing, frankly. And so I would go visit my dad and he had this best friend named Warren and he and Warren would hang out all the time. And, and I would ask the staff, what do you know about Warren? And they'd be like, well, nothing. We don't know anything about Warren. And if I knew about Warren, if I'd known, as I eventually did, that he was a huge Red Sox fan, that he'd been an accountant his entire life, that, you know, he, he loved the Grand Canyon and was a huge rafter, I mean, that I would have engaged with Warren and I would have talked to him about sports or about rafting or about other things. But in the first few years that I knew Warren, all I could do was say, hi, how are you? And he couldn't tell him, tell, tell me anything about himself. And so uh, what we're trying to do with these stories to some degree is to create community where none exists. And the irony is that you call these places communities, quote unquote, and but they don't really, people don't know anything about each other. And so so to go back to the original story, I, I, I handed in the form blank um, and I basically said, look, I'm a writer. I think it's easier for me and easier for you if you just let me write down his story for you. And they were like, okay, you're weird, but sure. So I wrote down his story. <laughs> 
story. <laughs> and they loved it. They remembered it. They told each other about it. Two of his caregivers were Ethiopian, and they'd had no idea that my dad had actually lived in Ethiopia for four years early on in his career with the United Nations. And they became his champions. They would sit for hours and show him their own personal family photos from Addis Ababa and Lalibela. And dad loved it because he remembered Africa from his early 20s, even if he often didn't remember last week. So the story really transformed his care. And so Memory Well grew out of that experience. And we so we now have a network of more than 500 writers across the country. And we write the life stories of seniors entering care, whether it's assisted living or home health care. All of our stories are super short. You can print them out, hand them out to caregivers. But then we also host them digitally. And that way families can upload their loved ones' favorite music and arts and videos and readings and photos. And that way they, have a whole, they can build a whole timeline of their life. And so that way, whomever's sitting with them whether it's a paid caregiver or a grandchild, they have a whole toolbox of things with which to engage them. When you talk about the fact that having the richness of these stories helps to enhance their care, I assume that also means it's enhancing just their life and their experience. It does. It's So not only does it help people get redirected. So for example, my father, one of the reasons why he went into care was that he would get incredibly violent, which is which happens with 20% of those living with the disease. It's a very, unfortunately, natural part of the disease. But trying to say to somebody, Mr. Small, please calm down, is really not going to succeed in calming him down. He just sort of ignores it. But saying to him, Hey, Gray, which was his childhood nickname. His name was Graham. Hey, Gray, you know, your mom, Clarice, your sister, Cecily, they're coming to visit. Shouldn't we get you cleaned up, ready to get you ready for them? And then he'd be like, oh, yeah, of course, you know, and he would react to the names. He would react to the situation. Knowing his story really helped uh, his caregivers with his care and connect with them. And it also helped them connect to other people. So they figured out that he liked to golf. And then there were these three other guys in the community who liked to golf. And so they got like a little putting set and they would get them together and they would putt together. And so it really helped them tailor activities in a much more personal way to the residents who lived there. Jay, how did you get from the original idea? I mean, at what point did it occur to you, oh my gosh, this is a great business idea? It was it was a few years. So the the story with you know moving my dad into community that happened in early 2014, and I was embarking in writing broad influence. Um, I was taking some time off I, to to do that. I took um, I ended up in taking off much of um, the end of 2014 and half of 2015 to write my book. Where and you I was, were you were working for Time at the yeah Time I, Magazine at the at that time right? Uh, yeah I was I was a I was a national correspondent for Time Magazine at the time, and so I took book leave for nine months. I went to Harvard to write the book where I was a fellow at the Institute of Politics. And while I was there, we were still sort of, it was me and a couple friends, and we were sort of mulling this idea of how can we use these stories? Maybe we could do something more with them because there seemed to be a genuine interest and a demand in this. And so um, we ended up participating, I ended up participating in a hackathon at MIT. Um, It was like a grand hack for medicine. And it was a weekend where, you know, 500 people get together from all different walks of life. And you have these different problems that you sort of say, you stand up in the beginning, you say, I have this problem. And people say, oh, that interests me, I'm going to work on it with you. And so this team of hackers came and worked on memory well with me. At that point, we called it storiography. (laughs) And it was like, and That was where the idea of having this digital platform grew out of that. So having this, building out this whole sort of digital universe of this person's life and enabling families who are often incredibly far flung and 
frankly, very guilty about feeling very guilty about not being more involved with care to really interact more and, and post in, you know, different memories and stories, post current photos of grandkids birthday parties that can be shared with grandpa or grandma, things like that. And it becomes more of a communication between caregivers and, and far flung family members. We literally just kind of grew out of very organically this thing. And finally, one day we were with, there's a thing called Aging 2.0, which is a group that um, that looks at sort of technology solutions to aging issues. Mm-hmm. They have like a sort of a pitch contest annually, and we were pitching in one of their pitch contests. And this community came up to us and said, that sounds really interesting. We'd like to hire you to tell stories. And so we thought, wow, this is um someone's going to pay us to do this. <laughs> this might be a business. Um, and so... And, 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 and the we was you and the fellow hackers? Or who, who was the we at that point? Well, so at that point, it was my original co-founder. He was the little brother of my boyfriend. <laughs> um, That's how life works. I know, right? Like, this is like this is sort of how life works. And so it was me, sort of my boyfriend and his little brother kind of all doing this. And then, of course, the relationship ended. <laughs> And the partnership kind of ended. A little awkward. <laughs> Super awkward. Like, lesson learned. Don't go into business with your boyfriend and his little brother. <laughs> like, um, and so, you know, here I was. Um, I, I was I'd left my job at time. Um, and I was actually at, at Halcyon at that at that moment, and um, which is an incubator in Georgetown. Uh-huh. And so I was sort of like, wow, well, I need to find a new co-founder, and um, I need to find people who want to work with me. And I I put out a notice on Facebook, quite literally on Facebook, and sort of said, hey guys, friends, I'm you know, looking for people who are interested in working with Memory Well, um, and. An old friend of mine, Theo Lecomte, who um, I've known since 2004 when he worked for the Kerry campaign and I covered the Kerry campaign, actually responded and said, I- I'm actually interested in working with you. And I, w- I was like so flattered. I was like, wow, Theo. I mean, Theo is amazing. So he was like the COO of the um, 2012 Democratic National Convention. His last job was deputy chief of staff of the U.S. Department of Commerce under Penny Pritzker. I mean, he's super accomplished, really great, amazing guy. And I thought, well, who better to like help me build this than a person with huge amounts of operations experience? Mm -hmm. And so we started to work together. It'll be a year next week, Um, and and he's just we get along super well. He's an awesome co-founder, really done an amazing job of sort of translating all these ideas that were in my head into reality, and and it's just been great. So this is a big shift. While the fundamentals of storytelling are something that you're very familiar with and very skilled at, starting a business is a whole different deal, right? <laughs> What's been the hardest part? So we're in the middle of a seed round. We're looking to raise a million dollars. We're about halfway there. And I found fundraising is, frankly, the hardest part. And it, and, and it's so interesting because sales I can do because I'm so passionate about this and I understand the the usages of the stories and I understand all the different ways in which we can impact not just frankly you know communities and and people living with Alzheimer's dementia or people in care across the board not just those living with Alzheimer's dementia but people who are in care whether it's home health care or assisted living or skilled nursing or independent care but there's also a lot of usages that we can do with a lot of the sort of 
data on the back end, understanding some of the environmental efforts that went in, you know, environmental, I guess, circumstances that went into Alzheimer's and dementia, which is a huge, or different diseases. And mm-hmm. so Meaning, a, like the contributing factors. Yeah, exactly, contributing yeah. factors. So there's, I understand the business case of it, and I can sell this, I can sell the sales side of it, mm-hmm. like, which has been, frankly, a whole learning curve for me in the last year. The investor side is really interesting because it feels a lot like sourcing, like as a journalist, so you, you have to get build relationships and get people to trust you. The irony is that people are so much more willing to part with their secrets and tell you things they should not tell you than they are willing to part with their money. And, like, <laughs> and, like, and so I, it's just been really, I, I, as a journalist, I think it's, I've, I'm, it's, that's been the real challenge for me is to learn how to really be a closer and be like, look, invest in me. We're going to, we're going to do, we're going to not only change the world, but we're going to make you a ton of money. Um, and that just is something that I've never done before. And so it's been a learning curve. So, Jay, you said something that comes up in a lot of conversations on this podcast, and that is, you know, getting comfortable articulating the value or selling something, right? Mm -hmm. Something that's very personal to you. What process do you go through to help you get to that level of comfort? Well, I certainly could, wouldn't wouldn't be able to do this, and I wouldn't have left my job at time. I loved my job at time. I love being a journalist. I love being a writer. I would not be doing this if I didn't really believe in the product and believe in what I'm doing, not just as a value proposition for care, but also as something that could make money. I mean, there, we are a for-profit, and it's something that I do believe you can make money out of telling people stories. Um, and it's sort of a different, little bit of a different model of journalism, but it is still a model of writing where... When I was writing for Time, I was writing about the 1%, the most powerful people on the planet for an audience of millions. This inverts that uh, sort of business model a bit. And and now I'm writing about the 99%. I'm writing about sort of everybody else for an audience potentially of 20, 30, 50 people, their family members who might read it. But it has a much bigger impact on that person's life. And I think that telling enough of those stories in aggregate begins to paint a a portrait of a generation that uh, we don't really have and that is incredibly valuable. I mean, this is a generation that controls 70% of our disposable income, and yet we know very little about them digitally. They're they're very shy on Facebook. They're they're almost non-existent on Twitter. Being able to sort of capture a lot of this data is incredibly powerful and incredibly interesting, frankly. And I think that we can begin as journalists to start to write sort of much broader aggregate profiles of this generation that I think is really just fascinating and super interesting. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I view it as as a kind of, I'm, part of what makes me passionate about it is that um, it's such a game changer for me as a, in an industry where we're still trying to struggle to figure out how to make money on anything, right? Mm-hmm. Like, will mm-hmm. people ever pay for these things? I think people will pay for their own stories, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and or for their stories of their grandparents who every Thanksgiving you've got, you sit there and you think, man, I should really like record grandpa's stories because he's got these amazing stories of World War II or living through the Great Depression or whatever else. And you either you do and the tapes sit, sit in molder somewhere or you don't and that opportunity eventually gets lost. And so we are a solution to that down the road where we really mm-hmm. can capture a lot of these stories and help families do that. So I think just the value proposition for me is something that really drives it. And I believe that we are providing something that's super awesome. If I were selling widgets, I probably wouldn't be as good at it, you know, but because I'm so passionate about it, I think think it comes through. Yeah, it has tremendous meaning for you, both Mm -hmm. because of your experience and because this really resonates with you. Mm -hmm. 
you launched the business about a year ago. It was a year and a half ago now. A year and yeah. a half ago. You So you have had an opportunity to get feedback from your customers and the mm-hmm. people that are using the product. Mm-hmm. What are you hearing from them? So the product's actually changed a lot, I think, in the last year due to customer feedback. So we originally had these very static stories that were 500, 600 words. They would tend to be a more on the shorter side. And customers basically said to us, you know, we love the stories, but when we send them around to family and friends, people want to add to them. They see all the things that are missing. So Uncle Joe wants to add the time when we went ice fishing in Michigan and whatever hilarity ensued. And so we so we built this platform, which we launched actually in March, where families could build out a whole timeline of their life and really add in photos and music and movies. And, and is it a is it a website that they access or what's the what's the product itself? Yeah, it's a website. So they're when they when they get a story, whether it's you know, they can buy it directly on our website or whether it's through a community who we work with, they then get a, they get the story itself, but then they also are able to have this this sort of interactivity, this this timeline which then they can add to it. And so this enables families that are very far flung to kind of add in their voices from all over the place and add in their memories from all the place. And this continually builds out and we send engagement questions to help this, you know, so where were you during the moon landing or, you know, different questions to sort of prompt families to have conversations around these different issues, first jobs, first kisses, first loves, these kinds of things, so that you always are collecting new and more memories and there's always new things to engage that person with, right? So it's not just that one static story because there's, you know, obviously the story creates a backbone, but there's a whole arc of a life there that is incredibly powerful that you can build on and capture. And it's not just for people with Alzheimer's. No. Despite that, that was yeah. your experience going in. But this is applicable for any family that wants to capture their loved one's story, right? Absolutely. And it's sort of been interesting to see the evolution of that, too. So we originally we originally began with Alzheimer's and dementia. But very quickly moved to sort of general senior storytelling. And now we've even moved beyond that. We've had people be come to us and say, well, I, I'd love to just buy this for my kid who's graduating from high school and I want to do a timeline of like his life but as he goes to college. Can you do that? And we're like, oh, okay. You know, like so, so we found that there are a lot more applications to this. Um, we believe in storytelling and we believe that it should be, um, we can love to tell as many stories as we can and however we tell them, that would be great. And so we're we're not sort of limited at all to diagnoses or age or anything else. Obviously, I think there's a much bigger opportunity for us, I think, in the senior market because so many families like have these these loved ones who you think, wow, I really need to capture their stories. And um, and and frankly, like my life is already captured digitally, right? Like my dog's every stupid pet trick is memorialized for all time on Instagram to see. And so like there in this case, a lot of seniors don't have that. And so for me, what's I think a big driver is to collect these stories that we're otherwise losing every day. You mentioned not working with the little brothers of of boyfriends um, as being one, one good piece of advice as it relates to picking partners. But beyond that, how do you go about picking partners, people to work with, building your team and your staff? These are different skill sets than you probably used when you were working as a journalist, I'm guessing. Totally. And that's been a huge challenge for me is, um, you know, I've, I've managed teams of journalists before, but journalists are over communicators. We tend to like overshare on everything. Right. So it's been really a challenge, I think, for me, especially to manage, I think, like coders and dev people like engineers, because they're so binary. And it's so interesting. Like they're just so black and white. And you're sort of like, can we do this? They're like, no. And I'm like, well, 
why don't we have a conversation about this? You know, <laughs> why don't we why don't we discuss why not? You know, and, and they get really kind of offended that you're sort of questioning whether or not that's possible. And you're sort of like, well, but I live in a world of grays and you live in a world in black and white. So we're going to have to learn how to communicate, right? It's funny. I have some friends, Amelia Friedman and Param Jaggi, who are the co-founders of a really great company called Hatch Apps. And they just developed this whole sort of not a game, but it's 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 like a guidebook for people starting tech companies and how to talk to coders. Oh, no <laughs> and kidding. And it's like <laughs> because it's such a huge problem and like and it's something that's come across and Parham is actually on our board in part because I needed him to tell me how to translate what I wanted to do in talking to our dev team. And that's been like a huge challenge. So beyond communications, we found it really important that we have fit. And I think that that's one of the things, the hardest things for companies is that is when you mishire and you hire somebody that doesn't really fit into the culture and they can really destroy a culture. It can really bring down a company. You have to be really careful. And so there's an expression in startup world where it's hire slow, fire fast. And I found that to be really, really important. And I've, I've, in the past sort of clung to being like, well, maybe it will work out. And like, I like him. He's so nice. And, and Theo has been like, it's great that you like him and he's nice, but this is a business yeah. <laughs> and it's not working and we need to move on. <laughs> What's your advice for dealing with those situations? So you find yourself in a situation where unfortunately you've hired the wrong person. You realize almost immediately it's a bad fit. What do you do? Uh, hire a Theo. <laughs> um, and like, no, I think he was amazing and he's been really good at sort of extracting us from situations where it just wasn't, um, it wasn't a great fit. I think, you know, he's hired so many people. He grew the convention from five people to 150 over a period of a year and a half and then probably dealt with a thousand different um, vendors. And so he's, he's really good at spotting, you know, fit and things like that. I think I've, I've spent more time trying to figure out as a manager, how do I communicate better? How do I understand when it's not working? And then how to like really begin to say, okay, if this isn't working, how do we, how do I sort of phrase that in a way that is clear and it doesn't have to be mean, you know what I mean? It can just be, it's sort of, it can be like, it's me, not you. Um, And it feels like a breakup. It does. Like a lot of this feels like an emotional, not just when it's your boyfriend and his little brother, (laughs) it does actually do, it does feel like a marriage and a breakup. And with each person on your team, because you spend so much time with them in this tiny little office, it really is important that those people like each other, respect each other, get along with each other, and that you foster this spirit where people want to work. We sat down and went through values. Um, we made a list of values that we decided this is what we wanted our company to really uh, embody. We did that again when we, for with every new person we've brought in. We've revised those values. We've had them give input to it. I don't know if we'll be able to do that you know, for every person, hopefully, if we keep growing. Mm-hmm. But we do, as the company still is so small, we want it to be this thing where people are really bought in and have values and and feel passionate about what they're doing because then we know they're, they're going to do better work because they feel you know motivated and passionate and excited about it what do you think your greatest strength is as a leader of this team so I it's been interesting translating the journalism space into the corporate space and I found that in the journalism world when you hand in a draft of a story and an editor hands you back this totally ripped apart (laughs) like covered in red ink kind of draft and you're like wow that's that was apparently really horrible um (laughs) as opposed to looking at it as feedback no well no I mean like (laughs) but I when I first started out in journalism I I used to take it so personally and I I would sit there and think wow this is I'm doing a terrible job and in fact no and my editor some of my best editors would say to me look 
I'm investing in you. I've taken the time to show you how to be a better writer. And if you take the time to understand my edits, then this is going to make you a better writer and it's going to make you a stronger journalist. And they were absolutely right. And so really, I look at most, I think, seasoned journalists look at really tough edits as a gift, right? Like if as something that is is a really wonderful thing for somebody to do for you because they are helping make you a better person. Um, I I take that into the um, the private sector in a way that I encourage my team to be incredibly critical. Like I want them to come forward and tell me when I'm screwing things up, tell me when I'm not communicating. I want them to feel free to say anything to me and I'm not going to get offended and I'm really not going to care. Like, and in fact, I will appreciate it if you're honest with me and I will like give you, bring you donuts if you like, (laughs) if you, and give you props if you like are really harsh with me because I find that I will only improve as a manager and as a person and as a boss and as a leader if you can tell me where I'm going wrong and what I'm doing wrong. And I can, and they'll only be able to tell you that if they feel comfortable saying where you're going wrong. And so I think that that's a strength that I bring to the team that I have always encouraged everybody to come forward and and they do and they tell me all the time how I suck and I'm screwing things up and like and and I actually really appreciate it and like it and 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 it really helps make me a better a better leader. So Jay, that's so interesting what you just said about feedback. Essentially, in journalism, it forced you to get comfortable with tough feedback very early on. Do you think that made a difference for you? I totally do. Having written a book about women, I've heard so many women who crumble under the idea of feedback. When there's criticism, they completely freak out. They have to be, like you said, they have to be perfect. I focus on that that 10% that they're getting wrong versus the 90% they got right. Totally. And like, so Harvard Business School started taping all of their classes, I think in 2011. They required all their professors to watch the tapes in order to help improve their teaching. In part, though, the reason why they were doing this is because a lot of women and minority students weren't getting credit for having the genesis of an idea that then a white guy would say later and everyone would be like, oh yeah, great idea. (laughs) And so they wanted to see where the ideas were originating and because a lot of the teachers just weren't trained to listen in the same way or they were passing over the first person who had the ideas. And so it was in part to help them see what they're missing, right? So, but the interesting, what happened was, is that the male teachers loved it. It totally improved their their, their performances. The female teachers would see it and freak out and th- see all the imperfections and all the things wrong, and it would make them worse because they would spiral, right? And so they had to stop <laughs> allowing the female teachers to watch the tapes, and they had to get third-party independent people to watch the tapes and then write down the criticisms for the women, and they took it much better. <laughs> and like, It's amazing. And so women are just inherently more self-critical. And these are women teaching at Harvard. Yeah, right? (laughs) Women teaching at Harvard Business School, right? And like, and so I think women are just inherently a lot more self-critical. Like I can't even watch myself on television when I'm on TV. Like people say you need to watch your tapes and in order to get better. Maybe I have, maybe I just don't have enough incentive to get better, but I'm sort of like, it's like nails on a chalkboard listening to myself on radio or watching myself on television. I can't do it because I'm like most women, I just see all the flaws. That said, I've become so used to the writing aspect of it and the criticism in that space that I really appreciate it. I look for that criticism. I guess I would say I'm much better at other people criticizing me than self-criticism. And I think that most women are the same way. That when you, it's incumbent on yourself to sort of look at yourself and criticize yourself, you're always going to be so much harsher. And it's just not productive because you're going to sit there and go, well, this just, this just sucks. Whereas if somebody else watches it and says, 
okay, here's what you did wrong. Here's where I think you can improve. Women take it so much better, right? Like they're like, okay, now I have like a goal and like I have a path forward and, and an external sort of validator to say, here's what's, here's what, here's what needs to happen. And so, and I'm definitely the same way. And that's why I encourage my staff to criticize me because the external sort of criticism helps me to say, okay, here's where I can improve. Here's where, what I need to do. If I were just left incumbent in my own to guess where I was going wrong, I would totally screw it up. I'm sure I would spiral. I would be like, where do I even go from this? Do you ever cry at work? That's an interesting question. I, I'm sure I have. Not because of work. Inherently in what we do, we're capturing people's life stories. They always cry, right? Like a lot of the families will cry talking about this. A lot of the, the family, you know, people will cry. I've definitely cried capturing those stories. I've seen, I, I remember telling really early on one of the stories this woman, Catherine, who was one of my dad's girlfriends, <laughs> and like her nephew was, we were interviewing her, her and her nephew. Well, really her nephew, because she was in what they call the pearl stage at that point. She was really folded in on herself and she didn't react very much. And she hadn't spoken in months by the time we were doing this interview, but she was sitting there and listening to the interview and you don't think they're there, right? Like you think that they're just sort of vacant and, but they are, they are there. And this is why it's so important to tell their stories because her nephew was saying that it was really a sensitive subject to ask her about children because she'd had one daughter, um, one child, a daughter, who at the age of 50 as an adult had committed suicide. Oh. It was like the tragedy of Catherine's life and it broke her heart. As he was talking about Susan and Susan's life, Catherine, who hadn't reacted to anything in months and hadn't said a word in months, just quietly tears just started pouring down her face and she you know started just just sobbing and the nephew started crying and then I started crying I like I get teary thinking about it and like and I mean because she was just you know it's you hadn't seen her react and you didn't even think she was there and, and yet clearly she was and so and she was listening and she was clearly reacting and so yeah it's I think in a lot of these circumstances it's really hard not to cry yeah. I mean I think the tears just come built in with the job in this particular case. So as you reflect on first telling your father's story and really having an opportunity to reflect on his life in a much more acute way than what most people ever do, what did you learn about yourself? I, my parents were um, UN diplomats. Uh, They met, they had this very classic, classic UN story where my mother was Chinese Malay and my father was Australian and they met in Zambia and married in Malawi and I was born in New York. And they were so international. They retired weirdly to Naples, Florida. You know, my mother was like the only minority in their golf club for the vast majority of their time there. This is not the way we grew up. To me, Florida seemed really, really odd. And it wasn't until the very end where I realized that they'd chosen Florida because, and I, and this I, I learned this from interviewing my dad. And and the good thing you could say, the one. The only good thing about the long goodbye is that it gives you a lot of time to prepare for it, right? And so I spend a lot of time as a journalist interviewing my father to just really get a sense of who he was. And in one of my final interviews with him, before he really couldn't talk that much anymore, I asked him about Florida. They'd always sort of not really answered it. And he talked about how their careers had been really difficult. They'd seen some of the worst things in the world. You know, he'd had whole staffs. 50% of camps lost to malaria in Africa early on, you know, where your entire, everyone around you was dying and it was really horrific. And, um, you know, they'd seen a lot of starvation, a lot of violence. And I think that they'd felt that they'd spent their entire lives trying to make the world a better place. And they weren't entirely sure that they'd done that, you know, and, and so in their retirement, especially after my dad's diagnosis, 
they kind of just wanted to go to a place where everything was pretty and that there you didn't see suffering and nobody talked about the world world politics and the only conversation was like what cocktail to have at sundown and like and how your golf game was going and who did better at bridge and they really loved that and like because they they felt they'd earned it in some way and i think that it was an interesting conversation to have because it gave me perspective into them and it also gave me a perspective into I think a little bit what drove my career and when I spent um, time in the Middle East and wanting to sort of understand war and wanting to understand disasters and human response and the more extreme parts of life was a very similar sort of driver for me as that and, and sort of and but I think that I also you know time at one point was like why don't you go over to the Middle East you can be Middle East beer chief and and I, I shied away from it because I just thought okay I've proven to myself I can do this but I don't know that I want to spend the next decade of my life getting to know every mullah in the Middle East and I I just I don't know I sort of in I, I don't really have a, a moral here except to say that it was one of the only times and one of the first times I really saw my own career and my own sort of career path in in theirs you know and, and understanding what drove them and understanding what drove me to do certain things mm-hmm. you grew up an only child mm-hmm. have you thought about what impact being an only child may have had on your career and career trajectory that's an interesting question I have I mean I guess I occasionally think about it um, it certainly drove my curiosity um, and you know to be a journalist inherently is to be curious and to want to go see things for yourself for yourself and want to go explore the world and and see you know check things out and I think that being an only child because I didn't have like built-in playmates I was forced to go look for playmates and go look for things and and it made me into a curious person where I was sort of like well okay like but what's around that corner and what's what's over there and I would go explore and 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 see things for myself and I think that that certainly um, I think impacted it. How do you define success for yourself? That's also a really tough question and I think I think I'm I'm very driven and I think I'm very hard on myself. I think a lot of women are very hard on themselves, and I think that they never think that they're successful, even though they're wildly successful, right? Just this morning, a woman said to me, congratulations. And and I was like, well, what are you congratulating me for? It's the company's still <laughs> like completely nascent or in the very beginning stages were a baby company. And she was like, congratulations on starting a company. Congratulations on all the progress you've made so far. Congratulations on taking that leap. She was like, you are successful. You're already like past a lot of milestones that other founders have not gotten to. And even if you ultimately fail, it's still a success because look at all you've learned. So congratulations. And I was like, oh, I should congratulate myself on these things. Maybe that is a good thing. So it's just, I think um, it's hard because it's hard to know when you consider yourself a success and when you think it's actually achieved. Yeah. How do you deal with fear? I mean, I'm assuming that you have fear. Totally. Most people do, right? Yeah, yeah. How do you deal with the fear? Totally. I think the first time when I when, when I brought Theo on board, he has these two adorable little boys. I, like, didn't sleep the whole first night because I was like, I have to feed those kids now. <laughs> like, you know, it's like the sense of responsibility of, like, I have to provide jobs. Children and, that don't belong to you. Yeah, exactly. Like, um, I have to provide jobs to people. I have to pay them on time. And it's like, that's a very very different experience for a journalist because by definition most journalists don't work for themselves and so um that was really daunting I yeah I'm totally I it feels to me there's all these different analogies in in reading about startup world you know some people say it's like leaping off a cliff and building a plane on the way down some people say it's like um Elon Musk says it's like 
chewing on glass while staring into eternity and learning to like the taste of your own blood, um, which oh, is like bleak. super bleak and really grim. <laughs> I feel like it, to me, it's more like juggling knives, right? And and you're always afraid that one of them is going to fall. And inevitably, one is going to totally fall. And you just hope it's not going to like stab you through the heart as it falls. And maybe it might slice off a toe. Um, but like, and you're hopefully it's just going to be a toe, you know, and not like a limb or like something that's like vital. And so it's just this constant sort of death defying act where you're sort of like, at any moment, you're worried that the fundraising is going to go away or the sales are going to go away or the hiring is going wrong. And there's all these different pieces and it, it feels like you're trying to keep all these things going at the same time. And it's really like three dimensional chess in a way that is so different than anything that I've ever experienced as a journalist. And so I think that that's, it's a huge challenge and it's just the operations of it, the functionality of it is just on on a very granular level, just a totally different kind of work experience. Yeah. To project forward a bit, um, recognizing that you are in the startup phase, you know, you've just gotten the company off the ground, everything's going great. What is your long-term vision as you think about five years, 10 years into the future? What do you hope Memory Well will do? Um, well, I mean, our goal is to tell as many senior stories as possible. And, and however we do that, you know, we're looking at different paths to get there. And so right now we're working, obviously, with senior communities. We've got a great pilot, paid pilot going with Brookdale Senior Living, which is the largest provider of senior care in America. We're in contract negotiations with them to go into a, a few hundred of their communities, which would be amazing. We're also talking to, interestingly, insurers, because the new Medicare Advantage rules that CMS just put out last month now count us as a supplemental benefit for that insurers can provide people receiving home health care. So that's really exciting, the idea that we could expand into home health care through insurance plans and how that might look. We're just beginning to explore. I, f- I see all these different ways. We're also starting a veterans line, so working with, with veterans groups to tell veterans stories. Oh, how wonderful. Um, and so we see these different ways in which we can capture senior stories, and I see them all as channel partners that eventually get us to the overarching goal of telling lots of senior stories. What that looks like in five years' time, I mean, I my, astro- my investors want me to say that that looks like an incredibly successful exit where I make millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, whether I sell that to an insurer or whether I sell that to... Um, you know, a big company, a tech company in the aging space, or whether I sell that to Ancestry.com. I don't know. I would not say no to, you know, a $100 million buyout in five years' time. That would be amazing. Um, is there something else that we can do to make this even bigger, to change narrative? I don't know. And I do believe, whether it's us or somebody else, that there is a use for narrative in many different ways in our society that I think we are not using it. And so beyond just seniors, whether you're you know, everybody has kids who every year they, they go into a new grade and those teachers have to get to know 30 to 50 new kids. Like they spend months doing it. Uh, what if every kid came with a story and that story gets updated every year and the teachers get those stories and it's a cheat sheet for those kids? That would be a lot better, right? Or what if instead of LinkedIn or with LinkedIn and with your resume on LinkedIn, you also had a story that you told the the epic tale of how you totally saved the day in your last job and why you should get hired and like how you're going to save the day in your next job. And so I think that there's a, I don't know what it looks like, but I feel like we're going to find a way to use narrative in different ways in our society and in our, in, in our economy and, and that we're going to find a way to monetize it in a way in ways that we are failing at right now that I think can really change, um, change journalism, but also change the world. 
Jay, we ask every guest who comes on the podcast for a piece of advice or life hack, either something that you live by or something that you consistently tell other people. What's your best piece of advice or life hack? I wake up every morning and I do 20 minutes of yoga. First of all, it gets out all the creaks. Like, <laughs> no matter how early I have to wake up, even if I'm catching a flight at like four in the morning, I'll always like build in that time because it just centers me in the beginning of the day. It helps me kind of organize my mind. It like makes my body flow and wake up in a good way that I think really helps. And I started doing it maybe really only two years ago. And it's, it's just really enormously helped me like just be a lot calmer, a lot like sort of take things a lot less, get a lot less highs and lows emotionally and just be a lot sort of like even keel. And it's really, really helped. Do you meditate as well? Or is it sort of the yoga, the, the sort of catch-all for... No, I do do meditation. I try to do meditation at the end of the night before I go to bed. Although that is relatively successful depending on how much wine I've had. <laughs> like, <laughs> I can find just dozing off. Yeah. Like I'll like start to meditate and then I'll just fall asleep. <laughs> and so um, I need to do a better job of actually learning how to meditate like independent of... <laughs> it's on my list as well. <laughs> Things to do. Exactly. <laughs> Learn to meditate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jay, it's awesome to have you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Really I appreciate it. You can learn more about Jay and about Memory Well on our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. We'll include links to Memory Well as well as to Jay's terrific book, Broad Influence. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please let us know. Leave a review and please tell your friends. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Thanks for listening.